The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in New York. If you haven't heard of Greg Kelly, you very likely have heard what happened to Greg Kelly. On November 19th, 2018, Kelly was caught up in one of the most shocking arrests the business world has ever known. It set the automotive world on fire. At the time, Carlos Ghosn was the head of the Renault-Nissan-Mitsubishi Alliance and the chairman of Nissan. He was arrested after a months-long internal investigation into his reported income and assets. After flying into Japan on a private jet from Lebanon, Ghosn was arrested by Tokyo district prosecutors accused of significant acts of misconduct. Greg Kelly, Ghosn's close associate and a Nissan Motor Company board member, was also arrested. Kelly had been asked to fly to Japan for a series of high-level meetings and was immediately taken into custody, charged with underreporting his boss's pay. This week is the one-year anniversary of Kelly's verdict in a Tokyo courtroom, a six-month suspended sentence, which allowed him to return to the United States immediately, three and a half years after his arrest. Of course, Carlos Ghosn's case was never settled. In a dramatic global event, Ghosn jumped bail in late 2019, hiding in a box that was intended for music instruments and placed on a private jet. He fled to Lebanon, which has no extradition treaty with Japan and has been writing books and making movies about the ordeal after his arrest. Kelly's case hardly received the same headlines. Kelly and his legal team argued during the trial that Kelly was searching for legal ways to pay Ghosn to stop him from leaving for a competitor. Prosecutors had asked that Kelly be sentenced to two years in prison. They alleged Ghosn, Kelly, and Nissan underreported Ghosn's compensation by $78 million in filings over eight years through 2018. Kelly had been out on bail and living with his wife in a Tokyo apartment. He had received expressions of support from Rahm Emanuel, the U.S. ambassador to Japan. This week and next, on that anniversary of his release from Japan, we hear the Greg Kelly story from Greg Kelly. We hear about his arrest, his conditions in a Japanese jail, including his month in solitary confinement, and his belief that there was a coup at work within his former automaker. Greg Kelly's story, in detail, just ahead of the release of an Apple TV movie. This is Cars and Culture. Hi, I'm Greg Kelly. This is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. The largest corporate scandal in the history of Japanese business. That's what the Asia Times called the situation that you and your former boss at Nissan Carlos Ghosn were caught up in. That publication pegged the loss of market capitalization in Nissan at more than $20 billion. Corporate scandals take down businesses, but in reality, they involve people. They devastate careers. They alter personal lives. Greg Kelly, welcome into the program. We're going to talk about this today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Welcome to New York. Uh, take us back to November of 2018. You're living near Nashville. You're the number three at Nissan, trusted lieutenant of CEO Carlos Ghosn, an automotive superstar in many ways. Your phone rings. It's Hari Nada, the head of the CEO's office calling from Japan. He asks you to come to Yokohama, Japan. Come to the headquarters, ASAP. Tell me about that day and the days that followed. 
Well, I actually didn't get a call from Harry. Um, my executive assistant in Japan put on my schedule a trip to Japan, and that was very unusual because I didn't have a clue uh, why they wanted me to come to Japan. So I called uh, Harry in Japan and could not reach him. And then I contacted Carlos Ghosn's executive assistant, Famiko Doi, and asked her if she could find Harry so we could have a discussion. Harry called me back and I said, you know, what's the schedule for me to go to Japan? And he said, we need you here for an urgent meeting. Uh, it really needs to be face to face. And I reminded Harry, I said, you know, Harry, I've got uh, neck fusion surgery coming up in less than a month. And why can't I do this on video? And at the close of the call, we agreed to get back to each other. A few days later, uh, Harry and I had a discussion again, you know, and I told him, I really don't understand why I need to come to Japan. Uh, I can do anything we need to do on a video, but he thought it was very important uh, for me to be there. And so he actually said, I'll fly you to Japan on a charter flight. Hmm. Now, I'd never flown on a charter flight across the ocean. I've flown all over the world, but, you know, it was primarily commercial. And he said, look, uh, I'll get this charter flight, and I'll get you back in three days before Thanksgiving, and in time for your pre-op appointment with your doctor. And I got on the plane, went to Japan. And now, was, for, for you, that, that was... First of all, highly unusual, because as you said, you've they've not done this for you before. Right. What was the what was the reason? Were you given any reason beyond this sort of nebulous? I need you here now. Yeah, he Harry felt that the meetings we were going to have really needed to be in person. Were so significant. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what he thought. And so I got on a plane, uh, and instead of three days later. <laughs> It took over three and a half years for me to get back home. Wow. What happened when the plane landed? When the plane landed, uh, I was escorted by the folks that met me to a van with a driver. And again, for me, this was a new experience because I'd always just gotten on the train into Tokyo, the Narita Express, or taken a, a bus with other people. So I got in a van... And I'd say it was about 20 minutes. I was on an expressway in Japan, and the driver informed me he had to pull over and call his family. And that's really unusual. In Japan, when somebody's got a task, they usually don't interrupt in the middle of a task. But I said, okay, that's fine. And the moment we pulled off the road, uh, five individuals climbed in the van uh, and started to ask me, about Carlos Ghosn's compensation. Uh, and then they took me to the Kosugi Detention Center, which was about an hour away. Five individuals climbed in the van and started asking you about Carlos Ghosn's compensation on the side of the road. That's correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked. To say the least. At that point, you knew that... What, what, when were you informed that you were arrested? I was never formally informed I was arrested. They just said, you're going to come with us. Uh, so they took me to the detention center. I was strip searched. Uh, I was interrogated. 
and then put into solitary confinement. So I guess at some point, officially, I was arrested. But, you know, nobody ever said that. No conversation with a lawyer, no conversation with anyone else. Your your wife, Dee, sitting here in studio with us. Well, uh, at that time, again, as I told you, I was shocked. I didn't know what was going on. But I also didn't understand the system in Japan. Mm-hmm. And what I was about ready to enter into in the system was uh, an experience where I would not have a lawyer with me when I was being interrogated, and I could have no communications with the outside world. So you had no communication at all for how many days? I was in solitary confinement for 37 days. Uh, About the fifth day, I finally met some attorneys that might I might retain uh, and once I retained an attorney I was able to meet with that attorney but other than that attorney I had no contact with the outside world so what was your first point of contact with your family after you were arrested was it five days uh, no it wasn't until more than a month later again I was arrested on the 19th of November the day I was granted bail on the 25th is when I first had a discussion with my wife and my sons so someone must have informed them where you were. Uh, I mean, you went to Japan and you had no contact. Yeah, my wife heard on the radio that Carlos Ghosn had been arrested and that an American had also been arrested mm. with him. So that's how she heard. Um, and she immediately contacted an attorney in the U.S., but like over a month, she and I had no communication at all. Wow. Solitary confinement. So you go from a, a private airplane to a van to solitary confinement. What was that like? Uh, again, you know, I use the same word more than once, but it was shocking because I still didn't know what was going on. Um, and, you know, I was jet lagged. And really, I had a pretty cirical, uh, serious physical condition. Um, yeah, you needed neck fusion surgery, as yeah, you said. and really needed it urgently so to go from i'm about to go to a business meeting to solitary confinement was really surreal after decades at nissan uh over 30 years yeah yeah your world's turned upside down it's must have seemed like a bad dream at that point yeah it was it was just didn't end yeah it just didn't end it was a bad dream and really i was cut off from the outside world and no contact, obviously, with Mr. Ghosn, who was in his own solitary confinement at that point. Right. Again, um, I had assumed, because they told me he was detained, since he had an apartment in Tokyo, I would have thought, you know, he would have been placed there. Uh, I didn't realize for some time that he was also in the same detention center that I was in. Right. Describe that detention center for us. What was your day like? Well, uh the cell I was in was about six paces long, so you could walk six steps wall to wall, about three paces wide. Uh, it was cold in there. They had no heat, and it was in the 30s. Uh, part of the room was a tatami mat, and one of the things that they required you to do was sit in a corner near a window where they could look in, and you had to sit like an L, so your back had to be up against the wall and your legs straight out. Um, 
and you had to sit in that position for hours. Uh, I've since learned that, you know, younger people who have good physical conditions really kind of suffer in that kind of a situation. But it was really quite excruciating for me. Um, there was a tatami mat, uh, not very thick, and a very thin futon that I slept on on the floor. Um, you know, I camped out with my kids, but I was really kind of in a physical condition that that really wasn't optimal at the time. Lights were on 24, hour, uh, 24 hours a day. They would remove your glasses and pens at night because of suicide risk, I guess. Uh, and then I was interrogated uh, for 32 straight days without my attorney for several hours a day. In the interrogation, what were you asked? Is this all focused around Carlos Ghosn's compensation, correct? It was interrogations about different things that had occurred over the last 10 years, uh, much of which I had no knowledge of, much of which I did have some knowledge of, uh, regarding um, the things that I had knowledge, things that Saikawa, the CEO, and I had done with outside counsel and others uh, to figure out a way uh, if it was possible to have Carlos Ghosn continue a relationship with Nissan after he retired because he was a very valuable guy and we thought that was in the best interest of the company. But your the focus with you was to figure out your role in what they perceived to be um, some illegal activity or was it or was the focus about Carlos Ghosn's role or both? They asked just questions about Carlos Ghosn. They asked questions about what our plans were and I just logically answered the questions the best I could. For hours on end. Yeah, for hours on end. And, and the interesting issue uh, is it was all about events that occurred six to eight years prior to that. And, you know, I'm a, uh, in my position, I got about 150 or 200 emails a day. <laughs> so to go back and say, do you remember this email from eight years ago? Uh, you know, most of those you don't remember. I, I, can, I can attest to that now. Let's go back to solitary confinement. 40 days, was it? It was 38. 37 days. 37 days. Mm -hmm. How does one cope with 37 days of lights on, 24 hours a day, sitting in an L-shaped position against the wall, mentally? Um, it was difficult. Um, at some point, I was able to get from the detention center a few books that I could read. But... Uh, you had a contrast of the monotony of a 24-hour period where you've got to sit in a certain position uh, interspersed by, you know, hours of interrogation. Uh, so, yeah, it was stressful. Uh, my physical condition had deteriorated uh, quite a bit during that period. And, you know, it was, it was a bit of a challenge. And they they had no interest in the fact that you had you needed neck fusion surgery or that you were in pain or that you were debilitated. Well, I raised the issue a few you know regularly. I did it in a in a way that I in Japan you know I was polite, but really the interest of the prosecutor was on the interrogation, uh, and that's what they focused on. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Japanese prosecutors charging you. As, as the mastermind behind the, the plot to provide millions in compensation to Carlos Ghosn. And that would be payable upon Mr. Ghosn's retirement as CEO. You told the court you knew nothing about that. Well, 
and you know the thing that I've got now is I've been through a trial that was 65 days and lasted 10 months. It should have been completed much earlier. But the evidence at trial showed that this, uh, without a doubt, that this was not a criminal matter. It was a corporate issue that should have been resolved by the board. Uh, Saikawa and I, who were top executives at the company in planning for the future, uh, agreed there was a need and it was in the best interest of the company to continue a relationship with Carlos Ghosn after he retired uh, for consulting and covenant not to compete. I mean, for something like consulting, Carlos Ghosn could have provided significant benefits to Nissan. You know, if he'd come up with two ideas worth $50 million a piece, which he regularly did as CEO and chairman, hmm. he would have paid for himself. A covenant not to compete was in, uh, important because there were key executives we wanted to retain and by continuing a relationship with Gone and him not going somewhere else, we had a good chance of retaining them. The, the steps we took were with outside t attorneys and a compensation consultant and there was never any f binding document and ultimately anything would have had to been approved by the board. Now, if this went to the board and if the board had this matter as was required by the J Japan Companies Act, Carlos Ghosn would have simply told him, I'm not owed anything. And the board would have correctly determined there was nothing to report. Case over. You avoid four years of turmoil. You're now in a situation with Nissan that it becomes a partner of Renault, no longer acquired, a partner of Mitsubishi and a partner of Fiat Chrysler with really excellent prospects for the future. When you consider the fact that... Uh this effort was being done against you and Carlos Ghosn, you termed it a coup. It was a coup. Tell me about that. Well, um, there were some mid-level executives at Nissan that engineered a coup to oust Carlos Ghosn in order to prevent a merger between Renault and Nissan. And... Um, Two of the main members of the coup were a guy, a fellow named Hitoshi Kawaguchi, and he was the head of government affairs. And then there was a gentleman named Harry Nada, and he was the head of the CEO office. Right. And what's really remarkable is they left a written roadmap uh, of, about the coup. So there's things in writing that show there was a coup, and it's corroborated by testimony at trial. And the the coup was was based on a philosophy that this the, the strengthening of the alliance, which at the point uh, prior to the arrest uh, the arrests, um, was was moving steadily toward a direction of being irreversible. Correct. At that time, mm -hmm. Mr. Gohn had just signed a new contract, um, another four year contract, I believe. Yes. And uh, the Mitsubishi, Renault, and Nissan uh, partnership it was thought would be solidified for good yes but there were people within the company that just didn't want that where right. did that let's just back up before the um the the pieces of the coup that took place this was an enormously successful turnaround of nissan right i mean you you were part of the engineering of all of this well the remarkable thing about nissan's story is carlos Ghosn came in with a team and, and turned around the company but 
more remarkable than that is in this industry, which is a really tough but fascinating industry, he sustained that for 20 years. So Nissan was really in good shape. And the prospects for the future with a structure that would still respect the autonomy of the companies, but at the same time would be something that would outlast Carlos Ghosn, I thought was excellent for Nissan and for the group. And where other mergers had failed through the years and had dissolved and fallen apart, this was one that actually had some traction. It had profitability. It had a, um, a, uh, a global structure of economies of scale that had, were unparalleled. It was a very good group. And I thought at that time, before this all happened, the prospects for the future were excellent, uh, especially by adding additional partners. So where did the momentum build to force a coup? Well, as I said, there were uh, just a small number of mid-level executives that strongly opposed a coup. Um, you know, one of the individuals, Kawaguchi, which, which I just thought was very interesting at trial, testified that he strongly opposed a merger. Yeah, he was adamantly opposed to it. Yeah, and that he met with other members of the coup on a regular basis to discuss their opposition and um, to discuss ways of preventing it. And in fact, he further testified that he believed Carlos Ghosn was bad for the alliance and that a merger would change the essence of Nissan, which he viewed very negatively. And he actually said at trial that he thought one of the, cul the culmination of his career was to oust Carlos Ghosn because that was good for the alliance. Hmm. So members of the coup did not report their concerns to the board, though. I never did. And that would have been required by something called the Companies Act. Right. If they had a concern about Carlos Ghosn's compensation, uh, their job was to go to the board and let the board uh, take it from there. Neither you nor Carlos Ghosn were ever interviewed as part of the investigation, right? Right. Uh, the investigation uh, should have been done by the board. Uh, and you would think concerning the matters uh, that we're discussing, that it would have been prudent to interview Carlos Ghosn and interview me. I could have set the record straight. But Carlos Ghosn could have simply said, I'm not owed any money, and the board would have then said, well, then there's nothing to report. Right. So all of your years, your 30 years at Nissan, how does a mid-level um, piece of the, of the company rise to uh, a, a, um, an effort that allows the CEO and the head of HR to be taken down. How does that occur? It seems structurally impossible. Well, they kept everything they were doing absolutely confidential and secret and just within a small group of people. And in fact, they were encouraged by the prosecutor once they went to the prosecutor to not tell anybody what was going on. And, and that's how they were able to do it. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with former Nissan executive Greg Kelly. And to see my interview with Greg, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 90 interviews. 
The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in New York. Now the continuation of my conversation with former Nissan executive, Greg Kelly. And to watch my interview with Greg, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 90 interviews. You're you're an attorney. Mm -hmm. You waited more than three years for your trial. Did you have any idea that your detainment would last that long? I didn't have a clue. Um... You know, I, I still really didn't understand the system. Uh, and then once I began to learn the system, uh, I learned that 98% of the cases that are tried in Japan, criminal cases, are completed well before uh, two years, less than two years. And really, my case didn't even start until two years after my indictment. So what, at what point during the imprisonment did you feel that you were even going to get any representation at all i mean i know you talked to a lawyer uh, at one point um what a month or a month or two into the uh it was, it was about four or five days right but but eventually getting the point where where you had um confidence that you were going to be able to address the charges was months later so at what at what point did you feel that that you were going to get any resolution for yourself in this situation well as i learned about the system you know, I had, it, it was interesting because there was no, this wasn't a criminal matter. Right. It was a corporate issue. There were no facts that would show this was a criminal matter because it wasn't a criminal matter. But what I had learned was that in the system, 99.4% of the cases result in a conviction. So the one time, uh, hand, I was very comfortable with the facts. But on the other hand, I was in a system that you know convictions are almost automatic so having to navigate both of those um ideas or, or you know opposing <laughs> uh situations what was the next step in your journey how did how did you get to a point where you could build a case that that you were that you were not guilty well the the best thing going for me was with the facts yeah. the documentary evidence uh that showed that uh, there was nothing to report. The, the only issue in the case was whether something which had never been paid nor promised to be paid had to be reported. Uh, and I had very good attorneys, and I have very good attorneys. So, you know, we had the case. The question for me was the system. Right, and working around the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, or or working within the system. Within the system. Right. Yeah. You had a lot of people working to get you home, or at least to get you um, uh, a, a, a solid legal team. And U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty was a part of that group. Um, so was U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel. Was there one person who stood out in their efforts to try and get you home to the United States? You know, what's interesting to me was the fact that there were many people from all walks of my life that worked very hard for me. You know, I had great, 
I have great attorneys. There's a gentleman, Kita Murasan, who's my lead of counsel, Ninoseki-san, Fujiwara-san. They're in a system where their heart, hands are tied behind their back, but they're just really, really good trial attorneys. And then in the U.S., a gentleman named Jamie Wareham, uh, Candace McPhillips, Kaylin Gustafson, Elizabeth Clancho, Michael Kleinman. Uh, they were very helpful because many of the documents were written in English. But what was fascinating is trying to see my attorneys in the U.S. work with my attorneys in Japan because the cultures are very different. But because they're uh, very open-minded people, they, over a course of a few months, learned how to best work with each other. And really, uh, whenever you work in Japan and you are not from Japan, there's always those cultural di differences. But in addition to my attorneys, uh, from the government side, uh, Senator Haggerty, who was ambassador when I was arrested and became senator, Senator Wicker from Mississippi, where Nissan has a big presence, Senator Blackburn, were extremely helpful. They recognized that Japan's a very important ally, but that I, as an American, was not being treated fairly. I was being treated harshly. And they publicly uh, went to bat for me. Uh, Ambassador Emanuel came on just a month before the verdict, and he was helpful. The number one most helpful person was my wife. I mean, to go through this kind of a stressful experience alone would have been formidable. But with her, we got through it together. And, I, you know, I greatly appreciate everything she's ever done. Yeah, tell me about her, her role in that and how she supported you during this process. Well, I mean... You're stuck in a country 7,000 miles from your family and your friends. And you begin to realize that this thing's not going to end quickly. Uh, and even though you're in a situation where there is no crime, you're in a system that's almost uh, with a 99.4% rate. It's almost an automatic con conviction. So you got to get ready for your trial but in that kind of situation, you miss your family, you miss your friends. Uh, every day is a grind, and you just get up and go after it. But to have somebody who's so supportive, uh, she's very smart, she's tough, she's, she doesn't give up. And, you know, just getting encouragement from her on a regular basis got me through it. I mean, she, she's just an outstanding person. Amazing. Tell me a little bit about the trial when it finally started and, and how that progressed for you. Well, the trial did, did not begin uh, until two years after I was there. and So you're uh, two years in prison without a... Well, under house arrest. Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't You were allowed leave. to leave at a certain stage. Yeah, I was not allowed to leave Japan. Right. But uh, I had to wait... Um, two years for the trial to begin, even though, again, the issue in the case was very simple and straightforward. Did something which was not paid, was not promised to be paid, have to be reported? And um, one of my attorneys in Japan said the prosecutors were ready to try this case very early on, but we went through a succession of trial dates being changed. Then we had a trial that lasted 10 months, 65 days. 
and it really could have taken place much more quickly. Uh, during the trial, we had consecutive translation instead of simultaneous translation, oh. which is used in many courts. Right. So Everything is twice as long. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it more than doubles. Um, so really, it should have been a 30-day trial. It should have been done in 90 days. Get 10 days a month in court instead of only six. But the trial took 10 months. And then one of the most shocking things to me at the end of the witnesses was in July, the court announced that they wouldn't have a decision for another nine months. Now, you know, in the U.S., whether it's a bench trial with just a judge or a trial with a jury, usually at the end of the trial, you have a decision fairly quickly. Uh, so it really drug out what was really a simple, straightforward case for 39 months. Hmm. When were you able to leave that uh, prison and go under house arrest? How long were you there? before that occurred? I was in solitary confinement for 37 days. Uh, then I got bail. And um, I was under house arrest, essentially, for the next three and a half years. Living where? I was living in Tokyo, um, near the uh, Imperial Palace, uh, in a little apartment there. and By yourself? W with my wife. Oh, Dee was there at that yeah, time? Yeah, she was there for the entire time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the day that you first saw her again. Oh, <laughs> it, it was unbelievable. I uh, was supposed to have surgery on December 7th, but because of this situation, it was uh, delayed until January 4th, and I had it in Japan. I saw her the day before, and it was a great day. Yeah. So that was the first time we'd seen each other since the middle of November. Wow. Tell me about working through the trial and getting to the end and and ultimately w hearing the verdict. Well, when the, the verdict was announced, again, you got to realize this is a, a country in which 99.4% conviction rate, but the court actually ruled in my favor on every major issue and every fact. The court ruled that I was not involved in a conspiracy that began in April of 2011 to underreport compensation as alleged by the prosecutor. The court ruled that the actions that Saikawa and I took with outside counsel and in-house counsel to draft post-retirement documents was indeed lawful and nothing needed to be reported. The trial court found that the court's star witness or the prosecution star witness, Toshiaki Onuma, in his testimony, uh, his testimony about me uh, consistently uh, contradicted the documentary evidence and therefore lacked credibility. So in essence, uh, on all the major issues and facts, um, the court ruled in my favor. Since you've returned home, Greg, Nissan has filed a civil lawsuit against you. Can you comment on the status of that? Yes, I can. Uh, Nissan filed a $12 million lawsuit against me before the end of my trial in Japan. They had paid a regulatory fine of $12 million regarding Carlos Ghosn's compensation, even though he was never paid nor promised to be paid. Um, and uh, the regulatory agency never inter interviewed me. 
So Nissan was the one that made the decision to pay the fine rather than defend the case, but now they are suing me for that. In addition, the, the amount in the civil suit was increased to $40 million because Nissan settled a shareholder's case in the U.S. where Nissan was defendant, Carlos Kona was defendant, Saikawa, me, and others. And they settled the case in the U.S. even though they had very strong defenses because my attorneys had submitted a request for production to Nissan and Latham and Watkins for information regarding the coup and that would have shown that Carlos Ghosn's compensation was not underreported. Shortly before the documents would have been produced, Nissan, without my knowledge, settled the case and they settled on behalf of Carlos Ghosn and me too so that in fact those documents would not be produced and according to my attorney, they settled for much more than the case was worth. Nissan then turned around, went to Japan, increased the amount in the civil suit in Japan against me for the settlement that they had voluntarily uh, undertaken in the U.S. And in Japan, I don't have any rights to discovery to get those documents. And many of the defenses I had in the U.S. are not available. So you're still mired in this to some extent. You're still living with this. Uh, still living with it day by day. Yeah. And on the criminal case, are you still appealing the one count in which you were found guilty? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Your your lawyer said that um, you are completely innocent. He cannot accept the erroneous ruling that found you guilty of even one count. And when will that begin or end? <laughs> uh, you know, in, in Japan, uh, unlike the U.S., when there's an acquittal, uh, the the government can still appeal the acquittal. In the U.S., you know, once you're acquitted, you can't get that appealed. So the prosecutor appealed my acquittal on seven years. We appealed the conviction on one year. And uh, again, I'm not sure when it's going to be decided, but I've been told it could be in the fall of this year. The, the one count where you were found guilty was of? It was in... Uh, there was an allegation that there was underreporting of Gone's compensation for eight years in a conspiracy that began in April of 2011. The court found that I was not involved in a conspiracy beginning in 2011, but that I was in a 10-minute meeting and saw a document in 2018 which disclosed what was going on in 2017. And when we talk about the one count in which you were found guilty, Greg, it boils down to one meeting, a 10-minute right. meeting. 10-minute meeting with a document that didn't have my name on it, didn't have my signature on it, uh, and really based on the testimony of a witness who the court found lacked credibility. So let's get back to the coup for a moment. Uh, you, you claim there are more than a half a dozen different events that occurred that were the structure of the coup. Sure. What were those? Well, in February of 2018, uh, Harry Nada wrote an email to Kawaguchi, one of the members of the coup, and several others. Uh, he wrote the email after the French government had informed Carlos Ghosn that he would only get a mandate as chairman and CEO if indeed he agreed to make the alliance structure permanent and irreversible. So in Nada's email, he said, the trains left the station on a merger, and we need to discuss 
our response as soon as possible. Now, over the next three or four months during the spring, Harry Nada met with Renault executives and uh, members of the French government and told them he adamantly opposed a merger and that a merger would be of no benefit to Nissan. And that frustrated Carlos Ghosn because Carlos Ghosn wanted to keep both parties open-minded about the future. In April and May, uh, under Harry Nada's direction, written plans were developed, detailed written plans, for protecting Carlos Ghosn if he opposed a merger, Hmm. as the coup members wanted, and if the French government wanted to get Carlos Ghosn out of the alliance, and there were also those plans then for ousting Ghosn if indeed he agreed with the French government to proceed with a merger. A plan A and a plan B. A plan A and a plan B. Carlos Ghosn stays if he opposes a merger. He goes if he's against a merger. After that, Kawaguchi went to the Ministry, Ministry of Economy and Trade, uh, METI, and he asked According to Mike Yoshi, who's a Latham and Watkins attorney, Kawaguchi asked Meti for help in preventing the merger. Uh, and Meti told Kawaguchi to go to the prosecutor. Hmm. And what was really unusual was around that time frame also, articles began appearing in Japanese language media where they gave credit to Carlos Ghosn for protecting Nissan for 20 years, but they stated that he had sold Nissan down the river because he was going to collaborate with the French government for Renault to take over Nissan. So momentum was building momentum was within building. Japan that, that the French were going to take over the Japanese institution. Right. And it was really unusual in those articles, which never occurred in Japan, unnamed sources from Nissan were quoted. Mm. So now you get to November 18, 2018. This is the day before Gon's arrest. Harry Nada sends an email to Saikawa, the CEO. And in that email, he states, Nissan executives need to tell Renault that Ghosn's ouster is a fundamental change in the alliance and that there needs to be a different governance structure for the alliance. And included in that also were the demands that should be made to ensure that a merger was prevented and that Nissan would assert uh, greater independence. Uh, A few months after that, Saikawa admitted to people that in fact there were a couple of people, or a small number, that indeed were trying to find a way to oust Ghosn to prevent a merger. And after he left the company, uh, in in a detailed article, he actually stated that he, there were a small number of nationalists that wanted to go back to the days in the 90s before Carlos Ghosn had arrived. So it was clear it was a coup. Um, and, you know, I can talk to you about the investigation, too, if you'd like. Yeah, tell me about the investigation. Okay. Well, the investigation, of course, Carlos Ghosn and I were never never interviewed. But what's remarkable about the investigation is six law firms and a former judge, most of them were retained by Nissan to review the investigation. And they found the investigation to be flawed and conflicted. And they based that on documents that showed that Harry Nada continued to exercise a great deal of influence over the investigation. And at the same time, uh, two attorneys from Latham and Watkins, Mike Yoshi 
and a fellow named Kobayashi-san, Hiroyuki Kobayashi, who had given a great deal of advice to Nissan and Nada about Mr. Ghosn's compensation, were taking a lead role in investigating matters about which they'd given legal advice and drafted documents. And in fact, two individuals, uh, the general counsel, uh, Rav Passi, uh, who had been involved in the investigation, and then the Renault CEO, Terry Bolleray, uh, when they took detailed concerns about the investigation to the board, both of them were removed from their jobs and terminated. Why were you caught up in this? Well, there were also plans that they put in writing for um, ousting anybody who supported a merger. And Nada and the others knew that I thought a combination that was irreversible would have been good for the alliance. It still would have, it would have been a holding company. That's what we were looking at. And it would have allowed both companies to have autonomy, but with one board and a little more collaboration between product development, product engineering, purchasing supply chain that could be enforced through the board, uh, there were significant synergies that could have been achieved. So you really would have had a structure that I think that would have unlocked better performance between the two companies, but allowed people in each company to still have the pride of the companies. And I thought that was good for the company. Was this something that goes even higher than the individuals who you mentioned that the Japanese government felt that this wasn't right for its 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 main engine of uh, economic activity, Nissan? Well, clearly, there's always been a reticence for any foreign interference in some of the biggest companies in Japan. And uh, Kawaguchi-san, who is the head of government affairs, regularly talked to top-level officials about Nissan. And, of course, he went to Medi to try to help get help in preventing a merger. And, you know, a lot of things are in writing that show that the government did indeed oppose that kind of arrangement and wanted Nissan to keep its independence. Thanks again to my guest today, former Nissan executive Greg Kelly. And to see my interview with Greg, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see some 90 interviews. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in New York. We'll see you down the road.